All right. Good morning. We are uh, we are in Mark chapter eight. We're going to be in uh, verse thirty-one into uh, the first verse of chapter nine. So I'll start by reading that, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Kelly and I went to see fish last week, so we missed uh, the Sunday school lesson. And of course, it's not recorded, so I don't have the benefit of hearing uh, Nathan's message from from last week. There's a couple things in there that I want to pull and and tie into our text because they're related. And, um, And of course... Last week was was a was a great event. Uh, we had a high water mark in the uh, certainly in the life of Peter, and I think some of the other uh, disciples as well, because Peter gets his eyesight. Uh, he uh, he sees Jesus correctly that Jesus is the Messiah. So we get this proclamation, right? And uh, and I think you talked about that that. You know, we, we've seen time and time again the disciples sort of missing the obvious and surprised when Jesus works a miracle and things like that, right? So, so the disciples have failed in many ways of, in terms of understanding, at least. And so we see this proclamation from Peter, and, um, and it, it's exciting. It's a breakthrough. Um, I, I suspect uh, that... Uh, Peter's not the only one. While he spoke uh, this, I'm sure that uh, that the other disciples, or certainly a number of them, were uh, were thinking the the same thing. And it's a miracle, right? We know it's a miracle because uh, Jesus uh, says as much. So the interaction last week was so important because his followers have to come to grips with who he is. That's the, 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 the most important you know, first step is to understand who Jesus is. So instead of the students asking the rabbi, the rabbi is asking the students these questions, right? He's 
initiating. He's saying, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, Jesus is turning the pressure up on, uh, on these men because the ministry is about to take a major turn. A, a great revelation is coming, and Jesus wants his followers to be ready for what's next. Uh, so many times when someone sees Jesus correctly up till now, he says, don't tell anyone. In fact, he said that last week as well. So he's keeping it under wraps. In chapter 9, Jesus will be, uh, his glory will be revealed and the ball will start rolling toward Jerusalem. Uh, You know, dominoes are going to start to fall here and uh, and there will be momentum bringing the ministry into Jerusalem. There will be no more incognito Jesus. So Jesus will no longer be hidden. There is a wrecking ball coming for the wicked religious leaders of that day. It's about time for things to start moving. So it won't be long until... Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and the old way will, will not stand anymore. So Peter says he's the Messiah. A huge moment, a big real, realization for Peter and his friends are starting to make the grade, right? Their, their grades are starting to come up as, uh, as students. Matthew records Jesus' response. Mark doesn't, but in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter was blind, now he sees. And again, we see that faith in Jesus is a miracle from heaven. So having established that, now Jesus begins to speak plainly. No parables in our text here. And... His plan for salvation is clear, but it's difficult. And so in verses 31 through 33, we see that although the disciples had made great progress last week, now the disciples can see, if you will, he speaks plainly about his plan and what it means to be the Messiah. He, uh, Jesus begins a new chapter in their education. It's time for the disciples to graduate, whether they're ready or not. So we see this term in verse 31, he began to teach, suggests that Jesus went into full detail. He was a a full teaching on the true meaning of the plan and purpose of the Messiah. The Messiah lays out his salvation plan to his disciples, and they hate it. <clears throat> it's like this, uh, this, this awesome high moment, and the door is slammed in their face with what comes next. And from a human perspective, it's totally reasonable for Peter to speak up and say, Whoa, wait a second hang on, Jesus, let me pull you aside and, you know, and, uh, and give you another idea here. 
Imagine if um, you know a CEO goes out of his way to recruit you, uh, <clears throat> a major uh, a major company, and you come on on board, you join it, you sign the documents, you take the uh, uh, the the bonus money, only to find that the plan is to ruin the company so badly that anyone associated with this company will have a tough time ever getting another job. Imagine if that's the, the plan, right? You'd be, what? You brought me into this business just to burn it to the ground and ruin my reputation, right? You would be unemployable. And it sounds a little bit like that with human ears, right? The plan is for everybody of importance in their society. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, will reject them all, right? Now, they'll reject Jesus, but they are his students. They are, their identity is with him. They are, their, their lot is thrown in with him. His failure is their failure. And so, of course, this plan results in bewilderment, dismay, frustration. These guys must have been blown out of the water. So we go from this high point to this low point almost immediately. For these men have given their lives to follow Jesus. They left everything to follow him, only to learn that instead of victory and success, the Messiah offers rejection and suffering. That's nobody's plan A, is it? So in verse 32... Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebuked the Messiah. Again, Peter is the voice here, but it's safe to say that the disciples are with Peter in this. Peter is, uh, is likely the closest uh, to Jesus and a leader. Uh, he's in the inner circle for sure. I mean, uh, Jesus and Peter are roommates for <clears throat> most of this time. And so, uh, so we get the rebuke, and Jesus' response to Peter in verse 33 sounds a lot like his rebuke of Satan in Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Mark doesn't record it, but if you recall, Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and suggests that Jesus could skip the cross and simply rule the earth with Satan, right? It says, uh, you know, in so many words, Satan was saying, well, you're the son of God. You can do whatever you want. Why do we have to be enemies, right? Satan wanted Jesus to see the plan through earthly eyes. And Peter's view is very similar to that. You're the Messiah. Why do we have to wreck this good thing that we have going? You can do whatever you want. Why do you have to give yourself over to death? And like the blind man at Bethsaida last week, Peter's sight comes in two stages as well. We cheer as he rightly proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. And probably for the first time, that's, 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 this is probably a, uh, a major faith step in the life of the uh, disciples. But Peter, too, didn't see the full picture yet, did he? I have, uh, 
I, I have a, a couple of notes. There's a prophecy in Psalm, Psalm 2, I want to read a few lines from, and then Daniel 7 uh, as, as, we, uh, as we talk about this. So <clears throat> we, have, uh, we have the Psalm of David in, in Psalm 2, and in verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's verse 7. And then verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this uh, kiss the son is written in Aramaic, right? So hang on to that for just a sec. And let's, let's read Daniel 7 here. Uh, in Daniel 7, verse 14, we get these words. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And in verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Davidic son of Psalm 2. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man referred to in Daniel 7. He will usher in an eternal kingdom over which he will rule as Lord and King. But, of course, the plan to get there is different than what we would expect. He will suffer, be rejected, especially by the wicked religious leaders. He will be killed and he will rise from the grave three days later. So why don't they get that? Why don't, why don't we get that? It's a pride issue. Our pride is great. <clears throat> so great that we think that we can earn it. We think that we can get there on our own dime, if you will. Nobody has to pay my way into heaven because deep down I'm a good guy. Even when we say we don't think that way, we think that way. It is so easy. I'm, I had my pride hurt yesterday, you know. It is so easy for our pride to be uh, stepped on. But all of these things may happen, must happen. They have to happen. It is necessary. It is what the scriptures have promised. Sin demands a payment that we simply cannot provide. This plan is where God's law meets God's love. This is where judgment runs into grace. God's wrath will be satisfied when Christ is crucified, and God's people will experience the fullness of the glory of God's grace. Peter didn't understand it that day, he does now.
So that so we open with that scene, and uh, it's it's almost like comedy, right? We get uh, Peter with a uh, high water mark and steps on a rake and smacks him right in the face, with you know, rebuking the Messiah a minute later. Jesus turns from you know this is all inside stuff. This is uh, this is a conversation with the disciples. Jesus turns in verse 34 and addresses the crowd. So now he's teaching the crowd. We have a we have a turn here and he has a lot to say to the crowd as well. So we go from inside to outside and Jesus is still speaking plainly. No parables for outsiders. We get some cross words here. If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So um, this picture was obvious to those who who heard him. Um, There's a there's a pastor, Lutheran pastor in the 1900s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He uh, he was uh, he he died in a German concentration camp right at the end of World War II, and he said that the way for a Christian is difficult, but the path and the end are glorious. I've got a couple lines from uh, from what he wrote because it's it's just beautiful. He says, "The cross is laid on every Christian. The Christ suffering which every man must experience is the." The first Christ suffering that every man ex- must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die to himself and live a new life in Christ. So that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so uh, in this, like, taking up your cross, as Jesus said, is not the human experience that uh, we we all have a phrase, like, we all have our cross to bear. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, hey, life is hard. We all have to live a hard life and then you die. That's not what he's saying. People carrying crosses are people going to execution. A cross-bearing follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him. The stuff that was important and valuable to you are no longer the most important and valuable to you. And so the self-centered life must be put to death. The self-serving life must be put to death. And so in uh, verse 35 through 38, Jesus pulls out his heavenly calculator and starts doing some math for us here with these uh, these questions. So if you've arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, this awareness 
requires something of you. You stand at the brink of true discipleship. Perhaps uh, this is a decision that you know you haven't ever, that you haven't made yet. That's very possible. Perhaps uh, you're at this gate and you're trying to help somebody through the gate. Uh, you might say that Jesus is the Messiah and you come to church, but you didn't actually kill the old man in you. Um, what is it worth to me if I hold on to my life or if I give it up? That's a question that we <clears throat> have to ask. You cannot hold a claim to your life and also Jesus. These things are separate things. It's one or the other. So you could be asking, well, who will love me better? Me or the one who died to restore my standing with God himself? When I uh, live for the benefit of others, is my life enriched? Or is it less valuable? What does Jesus' ministry, the healings, the exorcisms, the provisions of bread that we've read about in the last few months, what do all those things say about my own needs, my own struggles, my own sin? Is the kingdom of God held fast by the sacrificial love of Jesus something I could commit to by faith at the beginning of the gospel mark announced jesus to be the christ chapter 1 verse 1 and since then mark has kept it under wraps with the phrase tell no one we've seen this uh uh this this movement all through this first section and now, in our text, finally, Jesus is speaking plainly and boldly about his purpose. Peter has proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, and now Jesus is teaching what that means. And it's a shotgun blast to the heart for his followers. Not only what the Messiah will do, but also what it means to be his followers. Jesus says it will cost you everything you have, but it costs you nothing. Jesus offers intimacy with God, nearness with God. He offers love, healing, and forgiveness to sinners. He offers eternity with him and his kingdom. And so in verse 38, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He uh, sounds a lot like the God of the Israelites in the wilderness there, doesn't he? This adulterous and sinful generation. We see here that there are two ways to live. This does not mean that if you were embarrassed to share your faith with your neighbor or, uh, you know, 
uh, a friend at school that one time that Jesus will reject you. That's not what he is saying there. But it does mean that you are either living for him or you are living for yourself. Don't be like one of the Pharisees, like Jesus said, who honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? So Mark closes this instruction with, uh, you know, initially it's a little bit of a puzzling statement. He says in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, says, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. What's the first thing you think of when you think of that? You think of the Christ's return, right? You think of the rapture. Well, that's a long time from when this was written, right? <clears throat> uh, so my first thought was, well, what's he talking about? It, it must not be that. Uh, is it the transfiguration? that occurs a week later, some of you will be alive next week, six days from now. That also seems inappropriate, right? <clears throat> so we know his return hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> so when does the kingdom come with power? When the work is done on a dark and glorious day. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the culmination of the suffering that he just described to his followers. In that, sin and death will be defeated, releasing mankind from the bondage of sin. His followers can say then that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus they are, they are now free to live lives in harmony with God and not as enemies. They have the power to reject sin and Satan no longer has a grip on them. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I was looking at, uh, I was looking at Peter because Peter was a little confused in the start of our text, right? He was, uh, he was uh, seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, but not seeing the plan fully and what it means to, to follow him. So I uh, jumped over into Peter to read what, what he wrote. And uh, 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, um, verse 3 you know, I told you he sees the whole picture now, right? He, he writes here, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So he gets it now, right? What a great, uh, you know, benediction to uh, our, our text, I think. So, um, <clears throat> so that's, what I, that's what I have uh, from our text. There's, there's a couple of things that we, um, in our early study as a group, uh, talked about. And, and 
the, uh, the, the Gospel of Mark is uh, bolstered by three pillars, three, three major events. And so uh, we started in Mark chapter 1 with the, uh, the baptism of Jesus. He's, he is in his ministry. He's installed into this ministry. And, and uh, you, you recall that the Lord spoke out and, uh, and Jesus was uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, right? And, and, uh, and so Jesus put himself under their submission, uh, submitted himself to the plan, and off he went into the, the wilderness and by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So that started the ministry. And so this, uh, this discourse ends the first uh, stage, if you will, in his ministry. So uh, when we come back to Mark in chapter 9, we will be, uh, we'll start with the transfiguration, which is the second pillar in the, in the book. And we will see uh, his glory being revealed in, in, that, uh, in that text. And then, of course, fi- the, finally, the third uh, pillar is his Death, burial, and resurrection, right? And uh, and so those are those are the major events that Mark sets up. And so I think it's fitting for us to uh, we're going to break for uh, some other teaching for one or two months and um, and take a break from this. So it's a perfect timing uh, to uh, to finish this up. So um, thank you.